tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. Well, everyone, this week, The Feast is on tour. Okay, granted, a short tour. We're heading to Phoenix, Arizona to give a talk at the Rawson House in Heritage Square, on the untold story of women and their contribution to 19th and 20th century American cocktail culture. We'll be talking about just how boozy Victorian dinner parties really were, and how one early 20th century etiquette guide even suggested starting an afternoon tea with straight vodka. It's going to be a rollicking good time. There's even historically appropriate punch involved. But if you don't happen to find yourself in the Phoenix area, not to worry. We're recording the talk, and we will be including it as a very special bonus episode next week when we get back to Toronto. So watch out for that in your feeds. But in the meantime, this week, we thought we'd present an updated version of the episode that got us into cocktail history to begin with. That's right. This week, we're bringing you once again the real story behind the so-called first-ever cocktail party held by one Mrs. Clara Bell Walsh in 1917 St. Louis. Now, it probably comes as no surprise to anyone that there were parties, and there were cocktails at those parties long before 1917. But we are, by no means, here to take the title of Mixed Drink Maven from Mrs. Clara Bell Walsh. But the story, as always, is way more complicated than what you might read about on Wikipedia, which ironically still lists Mrs. Walsh's party as the first-ever cocktail party. Mixed alcoholic drinks, of course, by 1917 were centuries old. As you've probably learned from our episodes on eggnog and otherwise, even in America, mixed drinks were part and parcel of some of the earliest years of U.S. history, from George Washington on down. But it has to be asked, where were the ladies in all of this? Take a look at any early cookbook or domestic guide from the 18th or 19th centuries, such as Amelia Simmons's 1796 American Cookery, 
often considered to be one of the earliest American cookbooks around. And in these books and guides, you'll often find pages, if not entire sections, dedicated to how to brew beer, make wine, or mix a proper punch. Women were not only brewing and distilling, but actually were making mixed drinks for at least a 100 years by the time good old Professor Jerry Thomas came along with his first quote-unquote bartender's guide in the 1860s. But with the rise of Jerry Thomas and the world of professional bartending, which grew rapidly thanks to the numerous new restaurants, hotels, and private clubs of the late 19th century, all of a sudden, mixing alcoholic drinks somehow had become considered a man's profession. Or so we've been told. Dig a little deeper, and you'll find many women with cocktail shakers or bitters bottles still firmly in hand, from Amelia Simmons all the way to Clarabelle Walsh. So today, we bring you a classic feast episode, with the story behind that first cocktail party and the deeper history of women and cocktails in America. And long before Clara became Mrs. Walsh, she was simply Clara. Or rather, Miss Clara D.D. Bell. And Miss Clara D.D. Bell did not like being told what to do. And to be honest, there were few people who tried. It was hard to argue with the wealthiest woman in Kentucky, even if she had yet to turn 20. Clara's wealth had come with her father's sudden death in 1892. Now at the time, it was rare for women to inherit. Wills usually favored sons or husbands. But Clara was an only child, and only eight years old when her father had died. And her father's will had been specific. A trust would be set up for her, taking care of her education and well-being until the age of 21, when she would fully inherit a sum worth almost $2 million, making Clara one of the richest women in the state. So from the tender age of eight, Miss Clara D.D. Bell found herself a rare bird in Kentucky society, a woman of independent means. Which meant Clara was free from what society presumed should be the main occupation for a young woman in the late 19th century, the hunt for a good husband. At a time when women were discouraged from working outside the home, marriage was all too often the key to financial security. Landing a good husband meant not worrying about going hungry. But Clara didn't have to worry about any of this. She had enough money to live well for a few lifetimes. So Clara could spend her days outdoors, or more frequently, in the stable, pursuing her favorite hobby, horses. This was Kentucky, after all, home of the famous Derby the epicenter of horse culture in America. But as a woman, even a rich woman, Clara's love of horses was considered unusual, drawing the interest of many a reporter in turn-of-the-century America. In 1903, when Clara was 19, the Boston Daily Globe ran a page-length feature on her. She is not conventional, the article said, next to a picture of her sitting proudly atop one of her horses. And even in staid Kentucky, has dared to adapt the more modern way of riding astride. She is cultured, 
having been educated at the best institutions of learning. But being fond of home and outdoor life, she has gone as little into society as is possible. Newspapers, particularly the society pages, were fascinated by Clarabelle, her wealth, and particularly her independence streak. She regularly made headlines as she became a consummate horsewoman, buying and selling thoroughbreds throughout the U.S. and Europe, even competing herself in local horse races. But Clara hadn't rejected everything of what was considered to be a proper lady's upbringing. She attended an elite finishing school in New York City and gamefully attended some society events all over the United States with her mother, including trips to an elite resort in Hot Springs, Virginia, where she met her future husband, one Mr. Julius S. Walsh Jr. of St. Louis, Missouri, when she was only 14 years old. But the couple had waited to wed until Clara had turned 21, the age that finally allowed her to take control of her fortune. Now, if the timing seems suspicious, before we accuse Mr. Walsh Jr. of gold digging, it's worth noting that Walsh came from quite a bit of money himself. More than that, at the tender age of 27, Julius had become the vice president of the St. Louis Suburban Railway Company and was worth an estimated $10 million, the wealthiest man in the city. Clara's money barely made a dent in Walsh's own fortune. And more likely, the two families had agreed it was a worthwhile match because of this. Walsh wasn't interested in Clara's money, and Clara wasn't interested in Walsh's. And in an unusual move for the time, even after their marriage, Clara retained complete control of her money, including ownership of her childhood home in Lexington, Kentucky. Clara insisted she wouldn't be dependent on any man, even if he was worth $10 million. She would continue to ride, race, and travel at her leisure, occasionally dropping by the Walsh house in St. Louis, if she had the time. And even as a married woman, Clara attained that famous independent streak. In 1907, Less than two years after her marriage to Julius Walsh, Clara bought rooms in the newly opened Plaza Hotel in New York City. As a permanent resident of the hotel, Clara spent most of each year on the East Coast, occasionally defining her time between her opulent rooms in Manhattan, her family home in Lexington, and every once in a while the Walsh family home in St. Louis. But what does all this have to do with cocktails? Well, as we know, Clara had her own ideas about things, rarely letting society or convention get in the way of what she wanted to do. This can help us get a handle on how it was Clara Walsh may have been the first to hold a cocktail party in 1917. Of course, as we've seen, cocktails were nothing new by the 1910s. Mixed drinks had been a common part of American drinking since the real, or more likely imagined, days of Betty Flanagan. While you may not have found cosmopolitans or Mai Tais on a bar menu, complex mixed drinks were already a large part of American drinking. If you remember our episode on Andrew Jackson and his inauguration in 1829, you'll know alcoholic punch had long been a favorite on both sides of the Atlantic. And things got decidedly more complex in the mixed drink department as the 19th century progressed. 
By 1862, famed bartender Jerry Thomas compiled a manual of cocktails designed to help out drink makers in hotels, saloons, and private clubs all over the country as mixed drinks became more popular. The Bartender's Guide, or How to Mix Drinks, has long been considered the first proper cocktail manual, including some of the earliest recipes for the champagne cocktail, along with other mixed drinks with brandy, gin, and whiskey. After its publication, it became so popular, it was reprinted in 1876 and 1887 as American taste for cocktails grew. But where were the women in all of this? Well, back in Revolutionary America, there may have been more than one reason that the mythical inventor of the cocktail was Betty, not Ben Flanagan. Strong spirits like whiskey had long been gendered in British and early American society as masculine, not considered appropriate for women to drink, and certainly not straight. Yet while some mixed drinks, particularly punch, were considered part and parcel of male socializing, ones that men often enjoyed in private clubs or amongst friends, any generic dilution of spirits with syrups, water, or other added ingredients was often considered effeminate. Popular drinks of the 18th and 19th century that tended to be lower in alcohol and slightly sweeter were largely associated with women. Take the claret cup. Usually a combination of the fortified wines claret and sherry combined with sugar and lemon. It was almost exclusively considered a woman's drink. Featuring, for example, in more than a few scenes in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Societal expectations of women and their relationship to alcohol in the 19th century were nothing if not contradictory. While alcohol could be a benchmark of a man's social life, gathering around a flowing punch bowl in his private club, or enjoying a beer in the local saloon, societal norms for women wavered between being a good hostess, including, of course, serving alcohol as part of a meal at home, and not being seen to partake herself. Entrances to public saloons often were divided between men and women, with the women's entrance frequently around the back to a separate area known as the wine room, a term that increasingly became a synonym for a brothel. Women were often recommended not to partake at all. An 1860 etiquette guide advised that no lady should take wine with dinner. Yet customs for formal Victorian meals often hinged on specific alcohols paired to each course. Such traditions may even have been the precursor to the cocktail party, as a pre-dinner social hour with light snacks. As Catherine Gilbert Murdoch states in her excellent book, Domesticating Drink, Women, Men, and Alcohol in America, the strong Victorian tradition of starting a formal dinner with raw oysters alongside a glass of sherry may have been the first kernel towards what was eventually pre-dinner cocktails and canapes. From the late 19th to the early 20th century, a woman's relationship to alcohol was all too often determined by her relationship to a man. In 1893, a book called Beverages and Sandwiches for Your Husband's Friends proved the point, in which the author, one Mrs. Alexander Orr Bradley, included over 35 recipes for alcoholic drinks, with the implication being that the woman making them, of course, would never drink them herself. Even with these kinds of recipes, public opinion waffled about the idea of women making, serving, or even drinking cocktails 
in polite society. Several cocktail companies tried to advertise to women specifically. The inventors of the pre-made cocktail mix, Hublines, even marketed cocktails as health beverages in an effort to appeal to women in the late 19th century. Recipe books designed for women readers continued to include cocktail recipes, such as The Book of Beverages, issued by the Daughters of the American Revolution in 1904. But a strong societal norm remained. That although women might make cocktails for their husband, it wasn't exactly polite for women to be seen drinking them, particularly outside the home. Temperance activists in the early 20th century admonished women to avoid places that served cocktails. The London magazine Truth warned women of, quote, vermouth cocktails and fast men in 1910. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Let's back up for a minute here. We've already seen several trends that may have given rise to the iconic cocktail party as we know it today. There was already the association of socializing with mixed drinks, thanks to old favorites like the punch bowl, already popular for a hundred years by the dawn of the 20th century. There was also the association of having a stiff drink with a small snack to begin a meal, perhaps coined by the tradition of sherry and oysters at Victorian dinner parties. But here's where the language gets funny. Around the turn of the century, the term cocktail could apply to both a kind of drink and a type of seafood dish served at the very beginning of the meal. Of course, this is where we get the term shrimp cocktail, but around the 1890s and 1900s, other seafood could be served cocktail style as well, particularly oysters. In 1897, the Kansas paper, the St. Joseph Weekly Gazette, claimed that oyster cocktail parties were the latest fad in polite Kansas society. Even President Theodore Roosevelt enjoyed an oyster cocktail at a banquet held in his honor in San Francisco in 1903. But in terms of the oyster cocktail parties, it's impossible to know whether the parties just served oysters or oysters alongside a stiff martini or Manhattan. But when did the cocktail and the term cocktail party refer to cold drinks, not cold shellfish. The same year good old Teddy was slurping oyster cocktails in San Francisco, newspapers began to report on another growing trend. Parties with a focus exclusively on mixed drinks. These cocktail parties were almost always illicit affairs, full of scandal and debauchery. 
1903, temperance advocates railed against a cocktail party held by the infamous New York actress and socialite Lily Langtree, where jeweled gin suckers could purchase these evil beverages at 50 to 60 cents apiece. The same year, a paper in Illinois published a story of a young actress who ended up the unwitting host to not only a cocktail party, but a murder. When a tussle turned deadly in the actress's hotel room, after a round of drinks had been served, it was the cocktails the papers blamed. The woman complained that she hadn't served the cocktails. They had been sent to her hotel room without her permission. But the paper's tone was condemnatory all the same. Ladies of good repute would never find themselves at a cocktail party. In fact, for the next several years, cocktail parties had nothing but a bad reputation in the papers. A jug of poison Manhattans caused at least two deaths at a Brooklyn cocktail party in 1906, while a woman cited her husband's love of cocktail parties as grounds for divorce in 1907 Chicago. Even as late as 1913, the New York Women's Committee of 50 made it their mission statement to rid the country of any woman's club that offered cocktails at tea parties, along with other travesties like betting on card games like bridge. In 1910, the Anti-Saloon League, which supported Prohibition, capitalized on the negative press the parties were receiving, issuing a pamphlet that simply read, Can you imagine a cocktail party in heaven? But like it or not, the cocktail tide was turning. With the New York Times Society pages reported on Americans summering in France in 1913, an elite group that included the Vanderbilts, the article mentioned the growing trend of hosting cocktail parties, described as, quote, men and women guests gathering before dinner, gossiping at small tables, and drinking mysterious mixtures. It seems the cocktail party had to go international before it was accepted back on American soil. But that didn't mean that everyone was suddenly slurping pre-dinner martinis after 1913. Remember, U.S. Prohibition, something that put a real dent in public cocktail parties, took effect only seven short years later. All this brings us back to the question of Mrs. Clara Bell Walsh in May 1917. It should be pretty clear by now that cocktail parties were being held long before this point. So why all the fuss over this one party in St. Louis? And if we look even closer, it turns out that not only was May 1917 comparatively late to claim the first ever cocktail party, it wasn't even Clara Bell Walsh's first cocktail party. Less than one year earlier, in December of 1916, Clara Bell Walsh and her husband Julius had thrown something the papers had taken to calling a baby ball. Held at the St. Louis Country Club, guests were invited to dress up like infants and children. The ballroom at the Country Club was transformed into a giant nursery, complete with an adult-sized slide. And of course, there were the cocktails, served in oversized baby bottles. Now, costume choices aside, you can't fault Clara and Julius's choice of location. The St. Louis Country Club's prized bartender, Tom Bullock, was a cocktail master. Less than a year after this party, he would become the first African-American to publish his own cocktail manual, called The Ideal Bartender, 
although, understandably, he neglects to mention any mixed drinks suitable for baby bottles. So why all the fuss over the 1917 party? While Mrs. Clarabelle Walsh may not have ushered in the age of the cocktail party, she may have been responsible for another time-honored social occasion, the boozy brunch. While a societal convention had long agreed that the time for mixed drinks was late afternoon or early evening, perhaps an evolution from the Victorian pre-dinner snack of an oyster and sherry, Clara's cocktail parties were held, scandalously, right after church on Sunday afternoon. Guests were free to stop by and enjoy a cocktail prepared by a, quote, professional drink mixer, as the papers put it, in the Walsh's private bar in their home, the height of pre-prohibition decadence. The scandalous new time for these parties made more than one newspaper sit up and take notice. The Tacoma Times of Washington even commented on cocktail trends of the day. While old-fashioned guests may have ordered martinis or Manhattans, the trendier partygoers went with Sazeracs, Bronx cocktails, or even cloverleafs. Not up on your Bronx cocktail ingredients? Don't worry, we'll put recipes for these early 20th century favorites up on our website, straight from Tom Bullock's 1917 Cocktail Guide. But the question still remains. Why has this party been mistaken for the first-ever cocktail party? The hint may be in the title of the Tacoma Times' article. Cocktail parties are new society stunt, it read. But the reporter here isn't talking about cocktail parties themselves as new, but the new feature of holding them on Sunday afternoon, as the reporter says, quote, filling a long-felt Sunday want in society circles. Apparently, Clarabelle Walsh had solved a St. Louis problem of long, boring Sunday afternoons with drinks. Not that everyone was on board with Clara Bell Walsh's new plans on how to spend your Sunday afternoons. In an interesting turn of events, instead of finding fault with the women who attended the party, a Kansas newspaper tutted how such parties did nothing to improve the reputation of St. Louis businessmen. The popular American socialist paper, Appeal to Reason, was so horrified at the prospect of Sunday afternoon drinks, particularly during the height of World War I, they felt the need to issue a preface to the article describing the Walsh party. Quote, To any man that has even a thimbleful of brains, this news item should bring home the fact that America is going the way of Rome and that nothing but a social revolution can possibly save it. By throwing not only a cocktail party, but a cocktail party every Sunday afternoon, it's clear Clara Walsh's independent streak hadn't lessened over time. But the condemning attitude towards alcohol seen in several newspapers was one that at least a few other Americans shared. Less than three years later, the Volstead Act was passed, and Prohibition officially went into effect in January of 1920, lasting until its repeal in 1933, which put a rather abrupt stop to the Walsh's cocktail parties. That is, any public cocktail parties in America for over a decade. Clara's Sunday cocktail parties may have been put on hold during Prohibition, but that didn't mean her life was. 
she continued raising horses and living an extravagant life based out of her apartments in New York City. Her ever-growing circle of friends included some of the top names in New York society, as well as those in the horse racing and gambling worlds. Clara's name even came up as a possible suspect when Joseph Brown Elwell, famed card player and horse racer, was found shot dead in his apartment in June of 1920, leading to an investigation that would go on to become one of the most famous cold cases in New York City history. Elwell and Clara had been known close friends, and several pieces of evidence from the case suggested they may have had a, uh, well, slightly closer relationship. Notes from Clara were found in Elwell's possessions when he died, but Clara was never charged, and the murder was never solved. And less than three years later, another scandal. In 1923, Clara divorced Julius Walsh, citing the 1920s equivalent of irreconcilable differences. After the divorce, Clara moved permanently into her rooms at the Plaza Hotel, where she would live for the rest of her life. Now, in the 1920s, divorce was still quite the scandal, particularly in high society. But Clara refused to acknowledge it. Instead, she took to wearing black, insisting she was a widow, not a divorcee. Even after Julius Walsh died suddenly in 1929, Clara never remarried, preferring the company of her friends, horses, and dogs. But what had Prohibition done to the cocktail party? Unfortunately for many, the Volstead Act had made the profession of drink mixer basically impossible in the United States, and many bartenders who had made names for themselves at famous bars such as at the Waldorf Astoria, the Plaza, or even the St. Louis Country Club either had to find themselves a new line of work or head to Europe, where alcohol still flowed freely. So it seemed that the art of the cocktail was dead in America, and with it, the cocktail party. But interestingly enough, prohibition may have actually improved the reputation of cocktails overall, particularly American society's acceptance of women drinking cocktails. See, a law against the sale of alcohol may have been one thing, but getting people to stop drinking was something else entirely. And Catherine Gilbert Murdoch, author of Domesticating Drink, has an interesting theory about how prohibition changed societal norms towards drinking, particularly with regard to gender. With the famous hotel bars and cocktail lounges closed for the better part of 13 years, drinking moved to the private sphere. Yes, to the speakeasy, but more often, into the home. Women who had never been welcome in public spheres of alcohol like those hotel bars or men's social clubs, now could enjoy a cocktail at home without reproach. As support for Prohibition nosedived throughout the 1920s, a woman drinking a cocktail all of a sudden was now a positive symbol of rebellion. In 1930, the magazine Vogue published an article called The Anti-Prohibitionette, arguing that a woman lifting a presumably alcohol-filled glass was a thoroughly modern gesture. Women of control and good taste, according to the magazine, were apt to be militant and conscientious objectors to prohibition. The article painted a rosy picture of the women who were likely to reject the Volstead Act. They were, quote, women with a certain freedom of mind, women who went out to fight for a vote, 
In the war, they drove ambulances. They are athletic. They were the first to drink cocktails. They pile up the qualities of mind and manners that make leaders. And so from women of ill repute to athletic leaders of tomorrow, the image of women who drank cocktails had changed dramatically in a little less than 20 years' time. And despite Prohibition's best efforts, the scene was set for a roaring revival of mixed drinks when the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, officially repealing the Volstead Act, came into effect in 1933. Cocktails were back on, including, of course, the iconic cocktail party, which came back into fashion with abandon. After the 1930s, the cocktail party became a fixture of the American social scene, eventually giving us those Mad Men-style evenings of old fashions and martinis, not to mention the 1960s tiki bars, and even the infamous swinging key parties of the 1970s. But the cocktail party's pre-Prohibition origins soon faded into the realm of myth and legend. So much so that by 1975, the novelist Alec Waugh, brother of Evelyn Waugh, claimed in an article in Esquire that he, in fact, had invented the cocktail party back in London in 1924. Clearly, he didn't know his history. And whatever did happen to Clara Bell Walsh? Well, she continued throwing parties till the end of her days, and her rooms at the Plaza Hotel were an endless parade of actors, politicians, and socialites. She counted both Mae West and Queen Mary of England as close, personal friends. As she grew older, her parties became legendary for new reasons, as she began to serve more and more items evoking her Kentucky roots, from smoked ham from her own farms in Kentucky to fine bourbon. One partygoer commented that Clara Walsh's were the only silent cocktail parties in town, as people were too busy eating the fine ham than to worry about the drinks. And in 1957, only months before her death, she threw a huge party to celebrate the plaza's 50th anniversary, an honor she claimed as the hotel's longest living resident. When the New York Times asked what kind of cocktails she would be serving at the event, she insisted she would be drinking only pure Kentucky bourbon that evening. Martinis, she said with disgust, are rot gut. I love that story. Now, if you want to hear more about Clara Bell Walsh and the glorious history of women and cocktails in America, make sure you download our special live bonus episode next week, where we get into more of the great years of punch and prohibition in progressive America. And before we go, just a couple more things. If you haven't already, please consider voting for the feast at the Taste Awards. Voting is open until February 28th, so you only have a few days left. Go to www.thetasteawards.com and click on Viewer's Choice Awards to submit your vote today. And don't forget, if you take a screenshot of your vote and send it to thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org, we'll send you a fantastic historical recipe for some amazing celebration cake. A recipe, of course, we'll be making and digging into the history of, but only if we win. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with technical direction by Mike Port. I hope you enjoyed this cocktail episode redux, and remember, the bonus episode will be live in your feed next week. Until then, 
I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. NBC.